Welcome back to another episode of Down Ticket, a podcast about politics, campaigns, candidates, and really what you can do to get plugged into all of that. Before our interview this week, I wanted to take a second to highlight a friend of the podcast, uh, Florida Governor Rick Scott. Well, he's doing exactly what we knew he was going to do. He's running for the U.S. Senate. And as a Floridian who's gotten the privilege to witness the absolute horror show that is Rick Scott, the governor, I'm gonna take a second and read uh, some of. I'm gonna take a second and go and go through some of his accomplishments. Cue the music. <clears throat> as the president of Columbia Hospital Corporation or the Hospital Corporation of America, uh, Rick Rick Scott oversaw policies which led to a 1.7 billion dollar fine for Medicare fraud, the largest in history, um, and lied constantly when asked about it. Uh, Rick Scott denied hundreds of thousands of low-income and underserved Floridians health care by opposing Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act. Rick Scott then feigned support for Medicaid expansion uh, and then again uh, changed his opinion and now opposes it again. Rick Scott is currently wrapped up in a lawsuit to continue supporting the unconstitutional process of of stripping uh, convicted felons of their voting rights. Rick Scott signed and supported House Bill 41, which permanently allocates public money for anti-choice, unscientific uh, crisis pregnancy centers. Rick Scott signed and supported House Bill 7069, giving public money to private charter schools, and then went on a self-indulgent victory tour uh, to celebrate. Uh, Rick Scott banned uses of the term climate change and global warming at the Florida Department of uh, Environmental Protection. Uh, Rick Scott then lied about it. Uh, In 2015, Rick Scott vetoed $750,000 in appropriation funds for water pumps for Miami Beach, uh, a city that is literally being swallowed by the ocean uh, as we speak. Um, because of, you know, climate change. Uh, Rick Scott endorsed Donald Trump. Rick Scott has an A-plus rating from the National Rifle Association. Cuts uh, to the tune of about $10 million from Palm Beach County. Cuts for, to public universities and colleges, all under the guise of fiscal responsibility. Rick Scott spent the better part of his first term making sure your tax dollars went toward unconstitutional, unnecessary, and offensive drug testing for welfare recipients. And Rick Scott purged voter rolls 90 days before primary. I could go on. I think you get it. We don't have all day. My guest this week is Anna Eskamani. Anna is the Democratic candidate in Florida's 47th State House District. This is the north-central part of Orlando, as encompasses part of the city of Winter Park. I live about five minutes from the northern border of this district. It uh, makes up a large part of the north-central Orange County area. Um, I could spend, honestly, like 10 minutes talking about everything Anna has already done as a public affairs and communications director for Planned Parenthood as a PhD candidate at the University of Central Florida, as an activist, organizer, a leader in her community, as a millennial woman of color, but she says it better than I ever could, so I'm going to keep it super brief. She, in a lot of ways, is setting the standard for state house candidates in Florida and honestly the rest of the country, and I'm extremely grateful she took the time to chat with me. Here's the interview. 
to uh, learn about the district a little bit because a lot of people okay. listening to this aren't from Florida. So if you want to just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about, you know, where you come from. Sure. Happy to do that. Um, so my name is Anna Viascamani. Um, and so I grew up in Orlando, Florida. Um, I am running for Florida State House District 47. I'm a first-time candidate and um, will be the first Iranian-American elected to any public office in Florida. I just uh, I just want to get a little bit of background on the kind of the work that you've done with Planned Parenthood. So you just kind of your job as a director, what kind of stuff that you did, and then yeah. I'll... I'll... I'm working full-time, getting my doctorate at UCF, and um, running running for office. Um, my, my Planned Parenthood story starts like that of many American women that's as a patient. Um, so I found Planned Parenthood when I was 18 years old for birth control, I had nowhere else to go, and I lost my mom when I was 13 years old, and Planned Parenthood was literally the only place I could find um, that could answer my questions and help me make informed decisions. And so I started working at Planned Parenthood first as a volunteer, um, walking patients inside when we had protesters outside, and then um, was hired in 2012, um, really at an entry-level position to do fundraising for the nonprofit. And uh, I've been at Planned Parenthood for six years, and so during that time, I continued to expand my work, uh, oversaw a merger of three Planned Parenthoods into one, and, um, you know, was managing a team of six across 22 counties for public affairs and advocacy and yeah. um, communications as well. Yeah. I think that's really, I think your story actually leads in perfectly to what I wanted to ask you, because I think I wanted to see how you, how you see issues of choice in women's healthcare, maybe playing to your broader views on healthcare, because I I have this idea that I think per campaigns sometimes for forego the high ground by not incorporating issues of choice and women's health into their broader platforms for healthcare, and that this is a this is a lot less common now, thankfully. But I, I think, think it, it still, still happens. happens though. Yeah, yeah, it still happens. I mean, there are Democrats even who are scared or nervous to talk about abortion, and um, I I think we have to be unapologetic in. Um, a woman's personal medical decisions and, and, and how important that is and that it, it's a, a private decision between herself, her faith, her family, and her doctor, not politicians. And we can't shy away from that. I mean, a, a woman's ability to make a personal decision around her pregnancy is key to her autonomy and agency. Yeah. Um, and so we have to integrate that into our platform and, and we have to share personal stories to help break the stigma around reproductive health and abortion. And if we hide away from it, we're creating more stigma. And that's even more detrimental to the one in four American women who've had abortion in this country and to women who might find themselves um, making that tough choice in the future. Yeah, I mean, I feel that way a lot about like LGBTQ issues as well, because particularly the struggles with healthcare that the trans community experiences. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it's, it's, it can be, I, I think it's the, the step that people are taking to be able to say that yeah, women's rights are human's rights, and trans rights and non-binary rights are human rights, and I think that's really, I think it's really cool and really key because if we don't start talking about issues that way, then we're not going to, I think, make the progress that we need to start making change. I, I agree. Yeah, that we won't be able to advance them, right? And, and make sure that every person can be their authentic selves and and have a provider that that truly understands their identity and um, you know creates an inclusive space. And so. Yeah, if we don't integrate that into advocacy, let alone our lexicon, um, then we're leaving groups of people behind. That kind of brings me to maybe a little more of the sort of the broader culture that you're entering into, because it, I think 
limiting the choices of women and the rights of women is centers very strongly in that culture. Like, what are your impressions of how Tallahassee just kind of the swamp, if you will? Um, oh, it is a swamp. Oh, so I call it a cesspool, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just I climate mean, appropriate. This is, this is a this is an environment that um, prioritizes political agendas over the needs of people. Yeah, and and we see the exploitation of women specifically, whether it's through policy or through the treatment of uh, female staff interns and mm-hmm. uh, lobbyists. You know, we saw that with the Me Too and Times Up campaign and. On both sides of the aisle, um, powerful men um, exhibiting abuse and control you know, to those around them. And so not only do we see it in policy that has passed, but we witnessed it even in their actions. And so um, we have a lot of work to do to ensure Tallahassee is a safe place to work, um, but yeah. also an arena where policies that prioritize the lives of women and families are the ones that get passed. And I want to stress, too, that you know, reproductive health is not just about choosing uh, when to have a pregnancy and when not to have a pregnancy. pregnancy. Yep. It's also about raising your child yep. in an environment conducive to their health and well-being. And I would yep. argue that in a state like Florida, there is no justice for moms either. And yep. many moms don't have health insurance. They have Medicaid during their pregnancy, then they lose mm-hmm. Medicaid afterwards um, and no longer are insured. And I don't know how we can expect a mother to raise a child if she has no insurance. And so, you know, we have to we have to call that out and, and do our best to um, elevate the lives of women no matter what their identities are and no matter what their decisions are. Um, I think that's key to a person's free agency and autonomy. Well, we expect women to be able to provide health insurance for their children, but in order to do that, most of the time they have to work, especially single mothers, have to work, and we have no opportunities for pay, paid family leave is completely in the pits. Well, the even, uh, even earned sick time, you know, tell me, we actually passed a, a county um, earned sick time ordinance, and it was denied by the state legislature through preemption. I mean, majority yeah. of Orange County voters said, yes, we want earned sick time. And the legislature said, no, sorry. And, you know, they enacted big government while they preached small government. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so, yeah, you know, I call it an ideology of convenience, the notion yeah. that yeah. these folks are practicing an ideology that feels convenient for the time being, and yet... Um, you look at their true actions, and they exhibit the opposite qualities. I think we, we see it in a lot of politics, both in Republicans, from Republicans and Democrats, too, oftentimes paying very large prices for very small gains. And it's like the most toxic culture that can make its way into, like, a political political infrastructure that literally depends on whether people can eat or not sometimes. Yeah. Like, like yeah. it's pretty, it's pretty abhorrent. Um I mean, well, you okay? So you mentioned labor a little bit. I was wondering how maybe labor issues would incorporate into your broader. Yeah, podcast. labor issues and the issues of working class people um, are a priority for us. You know, we and we looked at it from an intersectional lens, knowing that many of our yep. labor workers are also going to be people of color or people of low income, and that when we can look at policies like affordable housing funding, increase the minimum wage, access to health care, I mean, all of this impacts. Um, the a working class and our labor community. Um, we've been, you know, I've been honored to work alongside labor for years now, and we do have the endorsement of AFL-CIO, and yeah. um, I know as, as uh, other unions begin their process of endorsement that we'll be able to, um, you know, display our support and, and, and do our part to work hand-in-hand hand with these partners. And something that I, I'm so grateful for is the 
co collaboration of all these groups, um, especially here in Central Florida, after mm -hmm. tragedies like Pulse and yeah. after President Trump winning, just seeing all these partners come together. I mean, in particular, um, after Pulse, Unite Here you know, played mm -hmm. a large role in the Pulse response because yep. um, some of their staff lost family members. Mm -hmm. um, so again, we we look at that at the at the connections between all of us and our struggle, and um, you know we're not like I said before we we don't leave anyone behind. And so I, I look at policy um, from an intersectional lens and see how it impacts each one of our communities uniquely, and we do our part to bring people together. So it's extremely important, and I mean the connect the connection in between the Latinx community that's expanding rapidly in Orange County. I think it says important things about how, like, the changes that are happening in Orlando and the kind of stuff that we can do about it, like, as people in politics. Absolutely. And, you know, I always tell folks that I'm mm. a facilitator first, a hero only if I have to be. Mm. And by that I mean that I'm not here to save the day. Like, I'm here to facilitate change. And yep. that requires connecting partners and bringing all stakeholders to the table and getting buy-in from different, um, different community groups and individuals. And, and that's I feel like that's my purpose. That's my role, um, is to help be that facilitator and ensure that we're all um, collectively building power together. I feel, I feel like there have been a lot of, uh, to talk about foregone opportunities in terms of uh, building our bench and incorporating these groups into sort of a lasting systemic movement for change. Basically all to say that politics don't stop after election years. Politics Absolutely. move and stay Absolutely. lasting. You, I was just wondering how you guys are planning to sort of combat that. Oh, my gosh. I love this question. So, you know, the first thing that comes to mind for me and my campaign and the movement that we're building is that we are not transactional. Yeah. And by that I mean transactional politics is very often um, defined as I do something for you, do something for me. That's the mm -hmm. most well-known form, and it's so mm -hmm. common. And we toss that type of politics in the trash, and we practice mm -hmm. transformational politics. And mm -hmm. for me, that means meaningful dialogue and, and engagement of every person, every class, and, and every, every background to be part of this work so we can build a, a stronger community together. And it's not a notion where I expect anything from you. You know, we mm -hmm. give with that expectation um, with the hope that uh, through our work and through your engagement, lives will be improved. And so that's, that's what we practice on my campaign, and we try to model that for others. Um, and that long-term vision for me, I mean, we will continue organizing even after we win. We're to keep knocking at doors even after we win. Because to your point, I need my constituents to be engaged with me 24-7. It doesn't just stop after November. I need you all to know what policies we're working on, you know, what committees I'm in, what committees I need you to make phone calls for. You know, if you share my values, then you'll – you want to continue the work and, and help push bills, and I need people on the ground to do that. And so for me, it's, it is long-term we do this work, and uh, many candidates don't do that. Many candidates, after November, they, you know, peace out, they're done. Um, they got what they needed, and they, they go on, and that's not how we operate. You know, we want to make sure people know we truly care about them um, and that we're accessible to them 24-7, and the reality is, we need to bring the work to them because people are busy and people have competing priorities in their lives. So if we make policy easy for them to grasp and engage with, I have no doubt they will do it. The real, the impetus on people anywhere near the left side of things is at the very least right now to start doing, you know, just as you said, start incorporating 
you know, movements for working class people and labor into our broader campaign platforms, but also to create, like develop the means for individuals who would absolutely 100% have more difficulty engaging in public policy, as we've seen, the precarity of someone's life makes it much more difficult to engage in politics. If we're looking to bring in, you know, people who are disenfranchised and marginalized, I feel like that's really the only way to do it. It is. And we also have to, you know, learn from our communities, right? Like, I can't make assumptions that I know um, what a district like... um, what a community like Hannibal Square needs. Hannibal Square is a historic um, black community in House District 47, and so I can't make assumptions of of what this community needs, but I go into the community. We knock on doors. We attend community meetings. I identify the the, um, the voices in that space who need an advocate, and, and we work together, and, and my goal is to lift up their voice. It's not necessarily um, to deem, you know, what they need. I need to listen to what they need and then and help get there together. Um, and and that does take an, an extra step, without a doubt. But um, we know that the only way to solve these problems that we face, whether they're economic or more social, is to understand what the community truly needs and and what what they've aspired towards, and and how and then we can identify the complexities around trying to get there. How like if someone's listening and they're they're really contemplating making a run for something thinking about you know going running for office what would you what would you suggest to them anything oh my gosh i mean the first step is to identify mentors um who can help you in that process and you know our campaign is driven by young people but it's also intergenerational we have um volunteers of all ages and backgrounds um, who contribute based on their unique abilities and you know i also seek the guidance of um you know leaders across the country and across the state um, to just give me advice on different issues and, you know, walk through, uh, uh, whatever priorities we have. And so I'm, and I have mentors from, you know, my UCF, uh, work, my Plan Hunter work, my Democratic Party work, um, my childhood. I, I still talk to my AP government teacher from uh, my public school, Mr. Yeah. Norris, who I do too. the guy that got me back into politics when I was 17 years old. And so, uh, Lou was texting him about Paul Ryan earlier this week. <laughs> so, <laughs> You know, we still stay in touch. And so that's my first my first piece of advice is find your mentors, especially people who have run for office before. Um yep. and, and listen, like truly listen. You know, of course trust your own judgment, but um, you know, don't be don't be frustrated if you don't hear what you want to hear. You need to be mm. able to um accept feedback and process it and reflect upon it. Yep. Now the other side of that coin is um you gotta be really thoughtful to your ability to raise money. Yep. And I'll tell you that one of the first things I did was you know put together my personal my personal donor list of just contacts mm-hmm. in, in my circle, mm-hmm. um, and I have pretty large circles just because of my work um, yep. these last ten years. Um, but you know if you, if you if you're running for a certain race and you know how much money was spent last cycle, and mm-hmm. if you're not able to you know reach a a number that can fit a budget that you need to succeed, then you might want to look at a different race or even you know uh, build your network up for the next yep. election cycle. And um, and you know start start somewhere else. You know I, I I've seen many young candidates jump for Congress, um, and rarely does it ever work out. And yeah. so you know think about too, you know where you can start that that really fits your your expertise, your ability to raise money, and mm-hmm. um, and fits your um, your skill set as well. 
And I think the first practical thing that anyone can really know in this situation is that money is what gets you the means necessary to spread your message. In that, if you're, I mean, if you're not, if you're, if you're thinking about, if you, and if you still find yourself with not like the largest circles in the world, like that's okay. Like you just have to think of more, you know, sort of unconventional and different means. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But and but to your point, you know, you have to play the game and play by own rules. And if we're going to eliminate um, the role that money plays in politics, the reality is we have to get in there first, you know, yep. to change the system up. And that's my philosophy towards it. But our campaign is fueled by small dollar gifts. I mean, we yep. have over seventeen hundred individual donations um, that have added up to over two hundred thousand dollars. And yep. so um, that's a key part to remember. I mean, my average gift size in my campaign account is about $125. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, sometimes it might take uh, like 10 phone calls to get to the first thousand, but uh, that's worth it. And that definitely is a, a, a path to win. And again, you don't have to necessarily outraise your opponent. You just have yeah. to race towards your budget. And so to yep. your point, craft a budget that meets what, you're able, what, what you feel like is enough to win and talk to mentors about that. Um, and if that's, you know, a campaign purely based on digital ads, yeah. Um, and door knocking with volunteers that's going to cost you, you know, 30K versus something else, go for it. Like, and that's, if you, if you feel confident that's all it takes, then absolutely go for it. Um, no one should be discouraged about that. Yeah. Field is also a very affordable and cost effective way to run a political campaign. Yeah. I mean, last Saturday, even, um, and <laughs> the hours, it was so funny. And my list wasn't even that big, but everybody, had such incredible stories to tell. And I was, wow. you know, sitting on people's couches, talking through uh, screen doors, you know, playing with kids. I mean, it was, yeah. it was such an incredible, um, incredible Saturday. And we actually did a email blast, you know, sharing these stories and uh, did an article on Medium as well because it just spoke to how incredible diverse our community is um, yeah. and how we can we can have civility, you know, dialogue, even with those who might disagree with us. So, yeah, incredibly rewarding. That's a motivation each and every day is for the people of District 47. Kind of, it, it seems counterintuitive because of the like physical exertion of knocking on doors, but it really is like whenever I kind of felt like I was dragging on a campaign, I would just kind of cut myself a packet and go out and knock the neighborhood, <laughs> and inevitably it, would, it really would make me feel better. Like it's just, awesome. I, think, awesome. I think everyone should go out and knock for their local state house candidate. It's very helpful. It is. It is. It makes a big difference. And we, you know, we also qualified for the ballot by petition, and yep. we did that back in December. Yeah. Um, and so we really do prioritize uh, the face-to-face opportunities to talk to our voters, and we'll keep doing it from now until November, and and after that too. Yeah, I mean, and you declared you declared fairly early, but that's still like that shows like it, it shows that like the time between when you declared and when you qualified for the ballot showed that you were knocking early. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! We um launched on July 3rd, 2017, and we qualified in early December of 2017. So, awesome. and we, yeah, we started knocking on doors, um, like, about two months in, um, you know, uh, two months of raising $50,000, and then mm. we uh, began launching our field up initiatives. And so, yeah, I mean, and, and we keep doing it every weekend. I'm, we're out there every weekend, and it only um, increases when we get closer. I look forward to once finals are done coming and knocking. <laughs> Can't wait to have you. So there's there's education is really kind of com- it's a complex issue, but a lot of shape is being given to education and 
like through like the teacher strikes and this kind of a thing. And I wanted to give people some context for like kind of what the Florida education system is like. And oh, uh, 2017's legislative session had House Bill 7069. You know Tell us more. So municipalities in Florida can leverage like it's a dollar fifty for I think every thousand dollars in taxable property value in order to raise money for school boards and the infrastructure necessary to keep these schools open and our public schools open, give them potential to grow. So that's construction, uh, maintenance to existing structures and new construction, equipment, that kind of a thing. And this, bi this bill essentially allows private charter schools to receive a portion of these funds. And it's, it's a bill that's engineered to really develop a pipeline that moves straight from municipal funds into private charters because, I mean, the problem, the thing is, is that school boards, and the really important part, the so school boards are allowed to do debt assessments before determining how much of this tax goes to either their existing debts. But what that really means is that the Florida GOP has set up an environment that makes it as school board debt goes down, the, the municipal to private pipeline gets bigger and private charters get more money and private charters keep growing. And it's really underlying a very toxic, that the really toxic environment we were talking about in Tallahassee. And I was really just wondering if you guys have a plan to combat awful things like this. Absolutely. I mean, the first uh, one point I want to add to that, too, is that many of these legislators in Tallahassee have relationships with charter schools. Yeah. Um, sometimes they're, they financially benefit from them. They have um, spouses who run them. And so... Again, this is corruption when it comes to um, a motivation that a legislator has to continue to destroy public education. And so um, we will always support uh, a parent's decision to choose where they want their child to go, but the reality is that we cannot leave behind the parents who choose public education. And as yep. someone who went to public school K-12, um, I, I know the value of public education, so mm -hmm. it's one of our priorities. And um, we want we to support um, paying our teachers better um, and protect yeah. teachers' unions, and you know, part of um, part of uh, another package of legislation in Tallahassee was to decertify our unions, and yeah. only unions that um, have uh, majority women members in them, like yeah. our, our teachers' unions. And so, um, we, we, you know, I think the reality is for my first session, it's going to be about defense. Um, it's going to be about doing our best to um, lift up the district in this work and to empower my constituents to make phone calls and to fight back against these bills during committee stops. Um, it's educating the public and also, you know, again, being sensitive to the charter schools that are doing good work. I mean, there are there are some out there. I mean, for example, we have a charter school in the district um, that works with autistic students and, yeah. and they also run the beta center. So again, I don't want to isolate every single charter school out there, but the reality is, is that Many are not regulated. Um, they don't set the same standards as our public schools. Even in the case of Parkland, you know, legislators passed their, um, their, you know, quote, school safety bill. Yeah. And charter schools don't even have to follow the <laughs> same policies. I mean, it's like, okay, you know, so layers upon layers of um, hypocrisy that we have to we have to call out. And the charter schools want to come to this state and reach the same standards of our public schools. And, um, and meanwhile, let's talk about high-stakes testing and how that impacts our yep. school teachers and students. And so, you know, again, there's just there's there's so much potential to do good, uh, but we need we need strong advocates who are not afraid of the charter school system, the voucher school system, and their lobbyists and people who can speak from personal experience as well. 
I'm also a public school kid, if you can't tell. And I mean, the big number is that 40% of new Florida teachers leave within five years. And oh that, it's, that it's lower than a lot of states. That's lower than a lot of states. And they're fleeing the state as if on fire. And I don't blame them. I also wor- I have also worked in the public education system in Florida. And it's, re- it's really tough to try and make ends meet. And, you know, looking at UCF as an, as an example, UCF um, provides excellent uh, degrees in education. And mm-hmm. so many of our students, um, like you already pointed out, they leave the state. And so we're, we're losing good teachers. And I mentioned my AP government teacher, Mr. Norris, who used to teach at University High School, my alma mater, but yep. he has since went to a private school um, because the environment was just so difficult for him to support his family. He, you know, over the time that I've known him, he has two two children now. And so um, the complexities of being able to work to this job that was overtime, yet, you know, if you only work towards your contract, you're not, you don't have the hours to get the work done and, um, you know, let him to leave the public school system. So, so yeah, this is, it's an intentional effort to sabotage public education. And it used to be more subtle, but now it's like right in our face. Yeah. We have to be very, very committed and intentional to, um, uh, lifting up the role of public education and empowering our teachers in the process as well. I usually use the analogy of, um, breaking good dishes. Like if you have a dish that, Maybe it could use a little bit of polish, polishing. It's, you know, it's it's not perfect, but it's good and it, it and it works well. And we just have to give it some more attention. Instead, they break the dish on purpose and say, "Oh, look, it's broken. Let's buy new ones. Let's privatize it um, and replace it." And so, you know, that's it's an intentional sabotage of public education so that um, they can perpetuate a system that uh, teaches to a status quo versus free thought and. The Parkland students are such an incredible example because you have these young, bright, articulate people who can stand on their own and speak on their own, and that's the you know product of public education. Yeah. So um, it's literally what every you know what these what GOP representatives and senators are afraid of. <laughs> and, yeah. And we, need, we need this this next generation of of free thinkers, and it's going to come from public education. Okay. okay so, so what do you want to leave? everyone on if you could could, like anything that you want to say anything you want to touch on um i mean this has been fantastic to just kind of you know talk to policy and and talk to people just recording stuff it i mean i think if there's anything i I want to leave with listeners is is really if you want to get involved with us and you want to learn more about us um our website is honaforflorida.com and it's two n's and everything's filled out and that's our handle for all of our social media outlets too. So it's Anna for Florida on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, even YouTube. We're also on Reddit. Um, so you can find us on almost, you know, every major platform. Um, and share your story with us. Share your ideas with us. Um, I'm very accessible to all these platforms. And we want to make sure that this, this campaign, is in, you know, involves every person um, in every way. And so don't be shy to reach out. Yeah, and we're going to flip the district. We're going to flip it. We're here to do it. Absolutely. So- Thank you again to Anna Escamani for coming on the show. Please, please, please go to her website at AnnaForFlorida.com. Find her on social media and get plugged into a very remarkable campaign. I'm on Twitter at Kyle S. Kern, K-E-R-N, and so is the podcast at DownTicket. Do the Facebook thing at Facebook.com slash DownTicketPodcast. And tune in soon for more Florida 
some Georgia, and some other stuff I've got cooking. Thanks again. Solidarity. Sunshine state of Florida. All year round it's a tropical playground. All around it's a lover's delight. Delight. With an orange sun in the daytime and a great big grapefruit moon at night. You'll find that holding hands on the golden sands is paradise.